And welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And tonight we've seen Last Night in Soho, mm-hmm. Edgar Wright's new thriller. Which everyone's going crazy over. Psychological horror set in Soho, in London. And you can tell it's been shot there. And there's a lot of care that's been taken in portraying the place. Mm. And it's about this um, young girl, played by Thomasin McKenzie. She plays Ellie, who is moved from Cornwall to London because she's been accepted to fashion school. She wants to be a designer. And she has visions. This is established very early on. She, it's, it's she can see that, ghosts. She can see ghosts. And she sees them in mirrors. Um, that way that you know horror movies will show someone showing up in a mirror. When you look away and look back, that happens to her. But they're friendly ghosts. Right? She sees her mum, who mm. she misses and so on. As she moves into London, which is exactly where she wants to be, and she loves London in the 60s, Soho in the 60s, she starts having dreams and visions of the past. And you'll have seen this in the trailer. Anya Taylor-Joy plays a kind of double of her and she in, she's in love with it and then the dreams start to turn into nightmares and a history of the place is exposed um, that's kind of as much as you can say in broad strokes without going into spoiler territory which we are going to do very quickly mm. I think um, did you have a good time? I did I did yeah <laughs> I mean it's a, it's, it's a really skilled film you know the music lifted the locations lifted you know, there are kind of some pretty dazzling cinematic, you know, techniques, right? I thought, you know, I think because I think people are going so crazy about it. I I would like, you know, to add some um, correctors is the wrong word. Yeah, but a, a different opinion on some things. There are some things that I thought really were not good. Yeah, mm-hmm. I thought the Michael Ajao is it character the mm-hmm. black uh, um, love interest. Yeah, I thought he was awful, and I also thought the mean girl. I also didn't like that the way that that was played. It was so obvious and overlaid, and you know, and it's partly the actress's fault, but I also think it's kind of partly in the writing. It's kind of I agree. It uh, actually comes across, and it's been co-written by a woman. It's been written by Edgar Wright. And Christy Wilson Cairns, mm. who her debut feature she was nineteen seventeen, which she co wrote with Sam Mendes. Mm. And she's done a little bit of T V as well. But she's kind of seems to be fairly early on in her screenwriting career. And actually, despite the fact it's been co written by a woman, I kind of felt like this is a film that doesn't understand women. Actually, I felt like I felt like particularly um, in that clique of mean girls, I felt like have you ever spoken to a woman? Do, have you met one? Mm. You know? I don't know. I mean, there are some things that you feel issues of gender have clearly been given a lot of thought. Yeah. But, I mean, I think there were things that, to me, you know, for a director that I admire as much as Edgar Wright, seemed second-rate, really, or or not right, yeah? So I didn't like Rita Tushingham's performance as the grandmother. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was almost, like, too earnest and needy, and, yeah, so that was almost over overblown a bit yeah. yeah as well i didn't like the lead performance either and uh, thomas and mckenzie. mckenzie he's very good we've seen her at least once before she was in jojo rabbit mm. uh playing the, the jew in the closet yes she was very good in that i'm sure we've seen her once or twice else yes in fact we saw her in old um the um that's right M. Um, Shyamalan film but this is a film in which she stars <laughs> yeah and I think there, to me, there were moments that she just didn't pull off, right? Like, 
you know, and particularly in her uh, exchanges with Terence Stamp in the pub, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it felt like really one notey and, you know, kind of slightly screechy. Uh, and again, I think that mm-hmm. might be partly the writing, but certainly, you know, the actress doesn't add anything to it the way that Anya Taylor-Joy does, yeah, playing mm-hmm. the, the other part. So, so I thought, you know, all of those elements put together, I think that's quite a failure of direction, really. Mm. I think the writing is a problem. Actually, that scene that you mentioned downstairs mm. in the pub with Terence Stamp, um, I was going to bring up the writing before you mentioned it, because it, that is what part of the reason that the performance is one note is because the scene is one note. The scene starts and just goes in one direction. Mm. Through. It's not a, not a very long scene, but it just it starts in one place and goes straight to the other end without without twisting and turning. Yes. Um, and I suppose it's kind of building up intensity, because the whole point at this point is that she believes that Terence Stamp is the guy who has killed Anya Taylor-Joy, and yes. she's trying to catch him for it. So like, I suppose they, they, you do want to get through it and, and push through and build up the intensity. It does, doesn't work. Right? And that seems so mechanical, because really, you know, you realise the only purpose of the scene with that handsome man in the 60s section was to pull this plot twist on you, which actually then feels so obvious. The one who she says, I think you're a copper. Yeah. So even on that level, I thought it was clumsy. Yeah, that kind of, you know, those things are meant to kind of evolve as a surprise and you're meant to make these connections. And so things that didn't work for me were, you know, at the very beginning of the film, it's like, you know, they're each other's doppelganger. Like they're the same person when she's, you know, when she's seeing this thing in the past, uh, she is Sandy, right? Mm -hmm. And she, you know, the next morning she wakes up with her hickeys and so on. And then that's dropped at a certain point, right? And then, like, why is it dropped? You know, why is she no longer, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, physically uh, uh, demonstrating that she's lived in the past with this person? I mean, it makes no sense. That but wasn't something I had a problem with because then the film. So it starts off with her kind of going through the mirror, effectively, and turning into Sandy, and Sandy turns into her, and then she gets stuck in the mirror, following Sandy around in that club, watching everything going on. And then in a later, you know, probably the next scene, she is there in the room with Sandy observing, right? So the relationship is not the same. And then uh, at other points, she literally, between shots, turns into Sandy and back again, which I thought were really well done. I mean, cinematically. They are really well, well done. But the point is, I thought there was effectively a dream logic going on there that I was okay with. Well, that this is these are worlds bleeding into each other. Ah, Okay, I'm fine with that as well, the world's bleeding into each other. But what I don't understand is how, in some sequences, she becomes Sandy. Yeah, and she, you know, and then when she returns to being herself the morning after, she shows manifest, yeah, physical manifestations of what's happened to Sandy, which never happens again. It happens to her in the mirror, I suppose. I mean, if you watch that scene when, when Matt Smith is all over Sandy, she's in the mirror, Thomas and Mackenzie, mm. also being kissed by him I mean I think that is a form of an explanation for it but the point is that I didn't have a lasting problem with it I didn't have any problem well I I I I did uh because then you expect it to happen again so you know that was yeah that was one kind of problem that I had the other problem was the introduction of the mother right because it you know you're told that she sees ghosts because she sees her mother in the mirror when she's still living in Cornwall before she goes to London Mm -hmm. right but then the story of the mother's mysterious because she went to London as well, mm. you know, and then she committed suicide. So, you know, I think things are being set up so that 
you know, either Sandy is her mother or her mother, you know, had an experience like Sandy or, uh, uh, you know, that the mother would be brought up by the Diana Rigg landlady at the end. Yeah. You definitely, I think, have some expectation that the mother is going to show up in the past somehow, even though actually it wouldn't add up. This is 60 years ago. Like the mother would have to be an infant if they're at all you know it wouldn't the math wouldn't actually work out well except that the time logic of the film is also in itself doesn't make sense in, in in relation to the contemporary because you know the grandmother says your mother and i went to carnaby street you know and to biba and to liberty and we bought fabric and we couldn't afford to go to the places so the implication is they were there in the 60s yeah yeah. yeah, which would make them a hundred years. <laughs> yeah, you know if yeah. Unless, but... unless the film is set in the nineties, which if it is, I hadn't really picked up on. No, it's it, got mobile it, phones. It can't. It can't. No, all the mobile phones are twenty yeah, twenty it, mobile. It's phones. set in contemporary times, you know, because also it's the London School of Arts, right? Which yeah. I think is a recent uh, thing. And the whole thing about like, do you know what a landline is? Because kids your age don't and all that. Exactly. It is set today. So, it yeah. is set today. So, but you are, yeah, the photo is of the photo when, you know, grandmother and mother went to Carnaby Street. Yeah, you in know, 1991. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it must be. Yeah. But the implication is that they went there in the 60s. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, because that's what starts off the whole 60s thing, right? Yeah. So all of those things, I think. That, did, that isn't worked out. That's, that's, they're trying to slip that past you. and We've, we've nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. You know, when you begin to think logically about it, or you, yeah, it, it, that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, so, so I think there were all these problems that are kind of glitz over, you know, by right being a great director of 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 movement. Really, mm. the way that sequences fold into each other and it's really wonderful. It's a um, film that moves really, really nicely, and I yeah. think as well as movement, which you're absolutely right about. He's a great director of mood mm, yeah, yes. and tone. Except, and this is where I fault Thomas and Mackenzie, I thought those moments where she went off the rails and screeched and she had the zombies after her, <laughs> I, I really thought that was like too one note. Yeah, like yeah. It, did, it, it just, it didn't make sense and it happened too often. Right, she would start kind of screaming, go out of control, and run away yeah. in a mad frenzy. And you think, like, well, a character might begin to wonder, you know, are these people real? Can they touch me? Can they hurt me? Yeah, you know, mm. I mean, just, yeah, not always to be the same thing and to respond in kind of the same way. I didn't like that. So I think he's great on tone and so on, but there were moments yeah. that I think didn't work uh, for me. So um, it's clearly kind of a pastiche to some extent based on things like Suspiria. And that's a clear reference point. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of that that one note thing that you you talk about in the sort of horror action. Makes me think of uh, this kind of fake trailer that he did for Grindhouse, Mm -hmm. which was the Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez double feature. Mm -hmm. And they had these four fake trailers in the middle and uh, he did one of them. And so it it was a trailer for a movie called Don't. Mm. And it was like, if you're thinking about going in that room, don't. You know, voiceover. <laughs> it, was, it was very charming. But like, it's a trailer. It, the whole thing, that trailer is one note. I mean, it's like a minute and a half long and it's funny. Mm. You know, But then it actually feels like that is kind of what's been expanded into the horror here. Because there's not a huge amount of variety in it. And when it gets um, action-y, and it's most action-y with all the blank faces following you around... 
there's yeah, there's really no variety in that, and and one scene of those faces is like any other. I did, I mean, I did like them. I thought they were effective and creepy horror villains to mm. have hanging around, but there wasn't a lot of development. No, um, until you get to that final scene with them, which sort of complicates matters. Yes, I mean, okay, what I liked about the film is, you know, this arc of female bonding that it has. Right, and you know this. What what begins as a kind of a romanticization of Soho, that then slowly reveals all the grubby underworld, the prostitution, the drug addiction, the pimping. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and that um, you know reverses gender expectation. Yeah, so it's all the men who've been killed who say, "Help me," <laughs> and then reverses it back again. Yeah, because I thought it was important. I thought, my God, yes, I hope it doesn't end like this, right? Like, yeah, because you know, that, that would have been like a real problem. Yeah, so maybe yeah. we should just say exactly what happens for people who aren't interested in seeing it or haven't or whatever, that um, the Anya Taylor-Joy character that we see visions of back in the 60s is a real person. Uh, and she's someone who is seduced by the glitz and glamour of Soho and she wants to go there and be a singer, be a star at the Rialto. Uh, she meets Matt Smith, who is a manager. And, well. was, and was, was wonderful, actually, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 to be fair, I don't think I've ever really seen him in anything. I, don't, I normally don't like him. Uh, he, you know, he's, he's too cocky and he's got this really angular face. But actually, I thought he was really wonderful. I think his look really suits the film. And yeah, he's, it does. His face, he's shot from certain angles or he holds his face in certain ways. The way he puts a cigarette in his mouth always yeah. is, is mm. quite stylish and intimidating in this. And he looks out from under his brow, you know. Mm. I think it's very good. Um, it's so, almost like the the stars who don't need direction are wonderful in the film. <laughs> yeah, because I thought Terence Stamp was wonderful. Diana Rigg was wonderful. Anna Taylor... Anya Taylor-Joy. Joy, wonderful, I thought. You know, but then kind of... Yeah, it's almost like they don't, you know, they don't need any help from a director. But then, you know, the other performances or the you know people who are less well known or who are younger need maybe, help. Uh, yeah, those are amongst the weaker performances. Yeah. Sure. Um, um, so Matt Smith is this um, manager. At least that's what we're told initially, and he can manage Sandy. That's the Anya Taylor-Joy character. He can um, get her a gig. He can get her an audition. And she does well in this audition, and she becomes part of the stage. She's not going to be the new star. She's part of the uh, dance troupe yeah. at this place. And it's a kind of dirty burlesque dance. Well, she thinks she's going to be singing, and yeah. then you realise it's a burlesque show. Yeah. Right. And so then... this is when the flip starts to happen, and, and actually Sandy starts to realise that this is not all it's cracked up to be. There's this seedy underbelly. And then on top of not being the star and doing this burlesque show... She's going to be asked to prostitute herself, herself yeah. to dirty old men who she, in the first scene you see her, she turns one away and Matt Smith punches the bloke in the face. And then later, when she sees Matt Smith hanging out with the guy and having a laugh, that's part of the realization that oh, I've got She's myself. She's been played, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then these are all the guys who turn up as ghosts in the real world in which Thomas and Mackenzie lives. They start bleeding into the real world. And these are the guys who, in the room in which Thomas and Mackenzie is staying, bedded Anya Taylor-Joy and we are led to believe and what Thomas and Mackenzie is led to believe is that Sandy was murdered by Matt Smith in this bed that's right and what the twist turns out to be at the end as we were saying is actually Sandy who also turns out to be the woman who owns the place yeah 
Sandy killed all these guys in this bed. She stabbed them all. And so that's why you get these ghosts saying, help, help yeah. me, help me. Which is where you say, oh, this twist comes in. You think, I hope, I hope she doesn't help them. Because yeah. <laughs> they are still bad guys. Yeah. But then it flips it back and, and um, she's not going to. But it still ends up with this thing where someone who is in the mood... Oh, she's basically a mad serial killer. But in the, but she has good reason to have taken out on... Uh, I'm not saying like people should go around killing 100 men. But in the movie world, she's kind of a hero. She could be constructed as kind of a hero. She's made out to be this kind of sad case in the end. Well, I think it's important that she's made out to be a sad case because basically it's like, you know, all these men, beginning with Matt Smith, right, who tried to kill her. Yeah, which is, yeah, mm. where, where you you sense the first turn happened. Yeah, because um, then she turns the knife back on him. And that's yeah. what we didn't see it first. Yeah, so it begins with him. And, and basically you, you do... Well, she says, I think at some point... You know, they took my life away, right? Mm. So, I've been living in a prison for so, that's so right. many years. So so I think it's all made really quite understandable. And then there's that lovely moment of solidarity, yeah, between the two young women at the end, which is also a moment of comprehension that she understood and the, and therefore we understand, yeah, what led this lovely young girl to end up, yeah, as this mm. old serial killer, right? So that aspect I liked very much, that arc, right? right? Um, so I love the look of the film. I love the music. I love how it moves. You know, I love how individual scenes are handled and how one goes from one to the other. But I thought, you know, it, it's a film that also has, I think, very considerable weaknesses that I don't see anywhere reflected in the in the criticism that I've read uh, so so far, where people are just having like massive wanks about, you know, how great Edgar Wright is, which I think is a real kind of failure of critical faculties, really. I mean, obviously, he is the British darling of the moment. It's a film about London and Soho, so already, like, you know, people are having orgasms about it. But, you know, if, if you can't see these faults that are really very considerable, then you can't see it all. It feels to me also very simple thematically, and I suppose in some respect this is a similar criticism to the one I was making of The Last Duel we saw recently, which is that I... Wanted more. I disagree about the last year. Which is, I wanted more complexity, and actually, it felt very simple. And the thing is, it's really good to have a big budget film like The Last Jewel talking about something as serious as sexual assault, and providing this woman's mm. view, you know, offering it, um, and taking her side and so on. Mm. But then, but then I. I I feel like I kind of took that as red and then went, but it doesn't it doesn't do it very complexly. Or actually it's too simple how it does that. It's, well, we don't it, agree that it's simple. Um, and I think something similar is going on here. You know, this very simple observation that, well, that in the underbelly of glitzy, glamorous Soho, it's deeply misogynist, it's deeply patriarchal, the women are all being I, exploited. I also think it's simple-minded. I think this film is simple. Mm. Um, or not as complex as I'd like to be. Because one of the things that I wanted the film to show was all the fun of Soho, right? You know, all the fun of that period, right? And, you know, I think a more complex film would have shown both intertwined. Mm, yeah. Well, I was going to say, does it initially, when you first well, meet Soho? It's I know, great. but that's that's almost just there to show you what a false facade that is, that mm. really there's this horrible underbelly. And then kind of you're moved into this horrible underbelly and you see nothing else. And actually, that's part of what I think the film is simple, mm. right? Because I think a more complex depiction, you know, would have... Uh, involved, at least the dialectic of, you know, these pleasures, the joy, the fashion, the money, 
yeah, the glamour, maybe meeting a couple of movie stars and rock stars, mm. as along with the descent. Yeah, there has to be something that is driving her. You know, she yeah. could run away. She could go back home, right? What's keeping her in Soho? Yeah. Right? I mean, sure, the guy beats her up or whatever, but you don't show that she's in love with him, which might be something that keeps her, right? So, I mean, you know. Yeah, it should be like the price that she pays for the great stuff that she gets is going through all of this. And she loses sight of the decline. But she doesn't have anything but great that no she gets. But there's no fun in it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I do think it's too simple. Um, and actually, I think it does a disservice to, you know, um, well, I was going to say women of the period, but even of women now, right, the, you know, there are always kind of reasons. Uh, and I don't think you get a full picture. You think, why does she, yeah? So there's a moment where um, the cop who we, we, we know will end up being Terrence Stamp. Uh, well, we, we don't, don't know. <laughs> yeah. We know now. We know now. Um, says, well, you've already given up, haven't you? Right? If you can't look in the mirror, you've already given up. Right. Yeah. And you think, well, why has she given up? I don't understand why she's given up. It's just begun. Right? Why has she given up? So, okay, she, you know, this guy might have forced her to sleep with, you know, a few men. But why doesn't she run away? Yeah, why doesn't she go go to South London, you know, and get a job in a pub? I mean, mm. you know, so, I mean, I know that in real life there are many reasons why people don't, and that's why they end up the way they end up. But at least, you know, a film has to make it understandable to us. You know, what is the lure and the pull of staying in that world? Mm. Yeah? So I think that's, to me, what makes the film simple. Mm. And you also don't get that from the older Sandy who, even though we don't know that's who she is for the majority of the film, I mean, you want to think back on lines of dialogue that, that express, mm. you know, something that in realising who she is, there's nothing that enriches her character, actually, in retrospect. No, and one of the main things, you see, so I think there are entire dimensions that are missed out, because obviously one of the, the main things that would be keeping her there and not wanting her to sell the house is all the bodies that are buried under the floorboards, right? Because there's a reference... Earlier on, oh, in the summer, yeah, make sure you lock the drains or something because it smells. Put the plugs in. Yeah, put the, the smell comes in. up. Yeah. So, yeah, and then and you do see a shot later on when it's all being revealed that she's this murderer. There is a shot of bodies going under the floorboards. Yeah. But it, but it's a close up and you don't really know where. And it's like, it would be nice to see the bodies somewhere, right? Mm. Let's let us discover them. Yeah. Maybe even in a post thing. I mean, this is the kind of film where afterwards, what we find out after the majority of the action has ended and we get the denouement is we see her terrific fashion show she's done very well at school and she's got this mm. great fashion show well done and she sees her mum again but this is also the kind of film where you would get just like a line of dialogue about all these bodies being exhumed from the house and how she's you know this woman who's just burned upstairs has been revealed to be this mass murderer None it's, of that. A, it's a film that feels like almost all the attention has gone into the visual dramatization. And very little work, or not enough work, has gone into all the dimensions that the script offers, or that the storyline offers the script and then the movie, right? Because I do think it was really beautiful to watch. I mean, you know, mm. there, were, there were some shots, like, you know, when you see the reflection of the rain in, the, yeah, in Soho, and then it moves up in all the neon light, or that moment where, you know, she enters, uh, is it Trafalgar Square, right? where the Café de Paris is, and you have the the James Bond poster. I mean, those are kind of like... Well, the fun- Thunderbolt. Yeah, it's fantastic moments, really. Mm. Um, 
but a bit empty feeling. I mean, the thing is, actually, I was comparing this before we saw the film, uh, just on principle, to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, because yeah, I kind of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is so clearly a love letter from Tarantino to the era of Hollywood that he loves, and this felt like it was going to be a similar thing from Edgar Wright but to the era of Soho that he loves. And well, I think there's elements of it. I mean, there's you do feel the love of the of the place. Of the place I think yeah. it's in that it, it is in that thunderbolt shot. You mm. really feel the wonder, mm. you know. But obviously, it's very keen to get into this underbelly. Mm. Um, but I, it's I very def- keen on getting into that underbelly without conveying the excitement and the sexiness and, you know, the lure of that underbelly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is that in, in comparison with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the depiction of the place and past here feels uh, kind of shallow. I mean, I suppose shallowness is something you would. We, you, it's a word you would associate with Tarantino. He's so superficial; so it's all image. And, mm. But but there's a real heartfelt love mm. in that film for the for, for the era that he's depicting. Well, I do that, I actually. I, I I do think that is also uh, in this film. It's almost like the film is too patly moralistic, really. Mm. That the lure of the bad, <laughs> such a staple of literature and drama and mm. everything. Right, like film noir, everything, you know, kind of badness is sexy, you know, sex is dangerous, and yet, you know, people do it. Kind of money's evil, but people go after it, right? Just th- th- like those mm. basic things. I mean, that is part, and the freedom, yeah, that might go along with that, and then obviously the the traps of that of all of that, right? Um, but the film only understands the traps and the fall. Yeah, exactly. It's know? not the case uh, here. Bad is just a prison. And it's something you can't escape from. It's not something that you choose to be in, mm. or you know, or understand, or pay a price for, or whatever that kind of thing. It, yeah, I agree with that completely. And it's funny that um, that that clique of Mean Girls early on, uh, the the leader talks about um, Ellie having like a Christian, like a born again Christian vibe. It's actually, I think the film does. It is. It's uh, sort of scared of its own badness. Uh-huh. It's unwilling to explore its badness to think to to to, to find it appealing. Yes. Mm. It is visually stunning. Yes, it is. I mean, I mean, stunning. It's one of the best films I've seen all year. Mm. Best looking films I've seen mm. all year. I was really, really impressed with every shot that involved one character turning into another. I mean, yes. I thought it was incredible. And actually, it really gets past you how smoothly it's done. There's one shot in particular, because some of it's done through cuts and things, and you get, okay, there's a bit of image replacement in the back, whatever. But there's one shot in particular, which is when Matt Smith dances with Anya Taylor-Joy on the dance floor, and then she turns into Thomas and McKenzie yes. and back again. And that is that appears to be a single shot. It does. How they did that, I have absolutely no clue. Yeah. And I would love to find out. I thought that was incredible. The, there are dazzling moments... With the camera, yeah, I, I, that's why I keep saying, you know, he's great with movement, you know, because they're, they're not just visual moments, it's not just a question of set design or lighting, it is about, like, set design and lighting and, and camera movement with the people placed in, in, in all of that, and it is actually, you know, dazzlingly inventive uh, and beautiful to look at. And kind of narratively seamless. I mean, that is the strength of the film. Mm. And I think that is, you know, partly why people are going so crazy about it, really. That and the soundtrack. Um, I wasn't mad about the soundtrack, I must say. There were a couple of songs that I liked. There's one by the Kinks. But I know, I, I love the soundtrack, except, you know, I hate Scylla Black Worship. 
because I really dislike her. I dislike her as a personality. I mean, I know that she has this nostalgia for British people of a certain age and beyond. Yeah, of a certain age. Yeah, you know, because of the pop music and then surprise, surprise and all that stuff. But I hated the persona. I hated the faux Liverpool crap. She was from Liverpool. I know, but she, you know, she wasn't from Liverpool all her fucking life, right? <laughs> Not in her mansion and wherever it was. So, you know, I hated that. But actually, I also don't like her voice, right? Like, you know, there, there are American versions of all the songs that of all her big hits. Yeah, all the big um, Hal Davis and Burt Backrack songs. You know, all done better, I think, right? And there's a moment when her she hits high notes. And there's a flatness to it, yeah? It's mm -hmm. like almost she doesn't hit it fully or, it, you know, when she hits it, it's not round enough. Mm. Yeah, this kind of, yeah. Uh, so, well, so, it's like Liverpool nasally, you know. You <laughs> <laughs> I love Liverpool. You know, and I love the Jamie Liverpoolians. Uh, well, I've never heard one of her songs, at least until this film, and I couldn't, I, tell, I couldn't tell you which one was hers or which ones were hers. Uh, so I don't know anyone who had a heart was one of them. Uh, and I forget the other one. I mean, I was probably in my 20s when I found out she had been a singer. Like, I knew her from Surprise, Surprise and uh, mm. Blind Date. The film highlights her, though. Yeah. You know, because they could have chosen a myriad of singers of that period, you know, and it's not just because they, I think they only played two of her songs in the soundtrack, mm -hmm. but they have her and her albums featured throughout the film. Yeah, and yeah. she shows up. She, she's a character she is, early she's a on. character in the Matt, film. Matt Smith talking to yeah. her. And they say Scylla Black about five times in ten seconds, yeah. which felt like overkill. Yeah, so... You could just call her Scylla. Surely, even then, people were just calling her Scylla. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, it reminds me of when I was, uh, I was watching um, Peaky Blinders, the first series of Peaky Blinders. Some character mentions Rackham's department store, mm. which is a department store in Birmingham. But she says Rackham's department store, whereas everyone would just call it Rackham's, mm. you know? And it's because you have to explain to the audience who has no fucking clue what Rackham's is that it's a department, department store. store yeah. But, you know, if it's authentic, it's Rackham's. Mm. If it's authentic, it's Scylla. So I think, I think it is a film that is drawing on people's nostalgia for something that most people haven't lived through anyway, but a kind of a nostalgia for an idea of, you know, yeah, of London and Soho and glamour. Um, and you know pop music um, and it's a film that wants to say the right things or have the right kind of attitudes yes. about the underbelly and exploitation of women and so on sure. and so forth but it's pretty simple minded about all of that yeah I agree So and overly moralistic yes it comes across as I think so I thought it was quite interesting maybe this is a very minor thing but I thought it was interesting that the ghosts of all these men well, for one thing, I thought they looked terrific. The kind of mm. the, the 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 shapeless kind of multiple faces that they had. I thought mm. they were very very creepy. They kept being referred to as blanks. Well, at least once or twice they referred to as blanks. And in um, the World's End, which is the third Cornetto film, which is the Edgar Wright mm. Edgar Wright directs those. Um, they're the uh, the British comedies with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Um, the villains in that are called blanks. Oh. Um, they call them blanks because they can't come up with a good name for them. Mm. But then the thing is that it, thematically, each villain to each character becomes a representation of, of their inner turmoil. Mm. So for the one character, it's alcoholism. For the other character, it's fear of cheating on his wife or whatever it was. Um, so that works, right? Like everyone has their blank to deal mm. with. 
Whereas here, they are a very specific thing, which is male oppression and rape of women. Basically. Yes. Um, and I was curious. I, I couldn't. I, there definitely seems to be a relationship between blank in one and blank in the other. I couldn't work. I can't. I can't get my head around where the connection comes, because, you know, I suppose the idea of it being a faceless enemy that comes from anywhere. It's a film that. It's a film that kind of ends up being being fearful of men almost entirely and not putting it into much, not putting it into detailed context. No, and also, I mean, I didn't like all of that anyway. You know, I thought that was really misguided and misjudged because, you know, not every man who goes sees prostitutes is like this brutal, you know, um, macho pig. In fact, the opposite. I mean, people often go to prostitutes because they're lonely and they're sad and they've got nobody and whatever, you know, and... You know, they see it as a transaction. They're not coercive or what. What I mean, you can imagine a lot of situations and you know uh, uh, like that. And you know, those people don't deserve to be killed. And you know, yeah, the film kind of I think doesn't distinguish. I mean, to be fair, what you do see are pretty awful men. Mm. But you, the only the only one that you see brutalizing her is Matt Damon. Matt, uh, Matt, Smith. Matt Smith. That's not. Right. Tarnish yeah. his good name. <laughs> yes, okay. You're right. <laughs> Matt Smith. So, so, yeah, to, I, yeah. Again, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a pretty uh, one note. The, the, the one man in the film who doesn't, who isn't like that is um, the, the young art student, the love interest. Well, and also you eventually find out the cop. Yes, yes, the cop. Uh, so. Um, Which is a pretty badly handled story element really yeah it was mind you I didn't see coming that um, that Sandy would be the landlady I think you, I think you're being so clued in throughout to see Terence Stamp as um, Jack mm. the, the Matt Smith character and you know the film really starts making it explicit to the point where she accuses him um, you feel like when it's revealed at least I felt when it was revealed that Sandy was the old lady I was going of course I, why, why wasn't I looking there you know, must be- that was a surprise, and that was an effective moment in the film. That was a nice twist. Yeah. I also didn't see that coming. Um, you so know. I, I like being misled when and, it's good. And the wonderful performance you know, from Diana Rigg, her last. Her last, and the film is dedicated to. Uh, yeah. Why not? So, um, anyway, it's a film that I would highly recommend, you know, but don't go in with overblown expectations. It is by no means a great film. You know, people have been saying, it's the film of the year. I think only if you're like a, a blinded Brexiter, you know, uh, uh, otherwise, uh, you know, it's a film that has, you know, some virtues and many failings. And, you know, that is very enjoyable to watch. To me, it also felt a bit long in the middle. Yeah. What's a Brexit got? Oh, because it's British. And you just go, any British film would be great. No, but because, it, because you know, the, I think the film's draw... Yeah, with the film... Oh, the nostalgia. ...is the nostalgia for the yeah. 60s and for Soho and for pop music and Carnaby Street and Biba. Yeah. yeah, all of those things that the film mobilises, yeah? It's funny, though, because despite the fact it's definitely trading in that kind of nostalgia, I can't imagine it being a film that people of that age are going to be that interested in seeing. Whereas if you think about... Um, but it's not that people of that age necessarily who are nostalgic for it. I think there's a nostalgia for 60s Britain... 
by all of the fucking country, <laughs> not, not just the old people. Right? <laughs> that's why. Well, that's where the Brexiter came in. Uh-huh. Possibly, I'm, I'm not sure. But I'm just thinking, if you think about like um, that King of Thieves that we saw a couple of years ago, which was the film about the Hatton Garden robbery, the heist, mm. which was the old people breaking in. Mm. Like that was so coated in not only nostalgia and um, and kind of love of Britain and in, in, in quite a dirty, nasty, homophobic way. Um, but also ended up with those clips of all the actors' films from when they were younger. Mm. And you think, like, this is just about reliving the past. Mm. You know? Yes. Anyway. Well, it's not that kind of nostalgia, because, you know, I think those were films for 70-year-olds, and, the, <laughs> you know, that the Great Marigold Hotel, or whatever it's called... The Best Exotic? The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel started a trend and developed an audience amongst you know that generation of people that's not the same thing but this is nonetheless drawing on a cultural nostalgia yeah for a different better time when the music was better and the fashions were better yeah, you sure. know and blah blah so so and that is the lure of the film with audiences i'm, I'm quite certain of it of all ages looked very beautiful though mm-hmm. so that's good Better than nothing. <laughs> I, I love. I think it. I was right to go in with slightly lowered expectations. Yes, I love Edgar Wright anyway. Uh, but this is uh, not his finest effort. All right, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. Our social media is Facebook and Twitter at eavesdropmovies. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>